The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm just welcome to Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. I'm Nancy Allspot Jackson. I'm Shannon Penrod, and I'm just rude and interrupting today. And I'm not even on the screen who I say I am. Uh, and Traven's probably ready to drop me down the nearest uh, mine shaft. Uh, but I'm I'm out of sorts this morning, like You're a lot of sure. parents around <laughs> around Let's the world. Let's get you back in sorts, Shannon. <laughs> yes. I was, I, I came in late because uh, it's the last day of school, like forever. And um, and that just had us all Twitter-pated and there are projects everywhere because finals are next week. And, um, you know, it's just, it's sheer insanity. Right. And, um, and I'm feeling it. So, uh, but I'm saying hello to Nazra and to MMTTM. Good morning. We're watching. How are you this morning, Nancy? I'm doing fine, Shannon. Are you, I, 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 I asked you this the other day, but forgive me, I don't remember because I keep asking everybody, are you still having classes or have classes ended? No, Wyatt's not out of vocational school yet. He stays until the 11th of June. Okay, so um, you still have, you still have ways. I always find these last two weeks like really stressful. Uh -huh. Um, and it's been that way since he was in kindergarten. I'm sure that I do it to myself, but yeah, we don't, you know, we all... don't have that kind of stress, but in vocational school, he doesn't have projects at the end of the year. It's totally different. So but we don't part of it is, stress. part of it is stuff that I put on myself. Like I'm trying to get together, you know, teacher and staff gifts and, right. you know, letters of recommendation for them. It's just always too much. Right. I need to edit. Yes, you do. Yeah. In any case, we're here, we're live, and Nancy and I are going to be with you for the next hour. We've got a great guest, a regular on the show, Leah Hirschfeld's going to be joining us in just a little while. And we're going to be talking about the last couple of times, because every month we have either Leah or um, Karen Nolte on to talk about research. And we've been sort of going down this rabbit hole. You guys asked for information about vision therapy, and then we got into talking about dyslexia and how you put those colored um, films over words. And for some people that helps them, 
we asked Leah to go back and, and look at some research on that. And I love that she just digs in and finds other things. And she found some really interesting stuff about synesthesia. Um, synesthesia? So she'll explain it to us. But my understanding is that with synesthesia, it's people who their senses take in information in a different way. So sometimes they um, see colors associated with a word or they hear a sound and they associate a color with a sound. So we'll, and, and it's pretty, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's common on the autism spectrum, but I have never heard of synesthesia outside of autism. Okay. And I know several people, you know, a couple of people too, who have synesthesia. Okay. So I, I look forward to hearing what the research says about that because it, it almost, it sounds um, like something out of a fantasy novel. It does. It sounds like science fiction. Yeah. So she'll tell us what the what the science is on that, um, and and I I'm looking forward to that. So that'll be really yeah, cool. Too. I do want to say to everybody that we love interacting with you. Uh, we love that you're here. We see that Nazra is coming to us from Saint Paul. I love, love Saint Paul. It's a very beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and y'all have a mall up there that's like crazy. <laughs> have you ever been to the Mall of America? Uh, Nancy. I've never been to Minneapolis. It's, uh, it's, it's a big mall. I can uh-huh. say that with all authority, that it's a big mall. I mean, there's an amusement. I don't know if it's. Coming to us from Austria. Yeah, we love that. Saying hello to you. Um, so uh, we're, and we also have some news coming up for you, but I want to say really quickly that we love it when you guys chat with us like this. There are lots of ways to interact. We are live right now. It is Friday, May 28th, 2021, because sometimes people tune in, Nancy, and they go, oh, this is a recording. No, we're live right now. We're live. And, um, but later on, we'll be recorded. We do a podcast, and it will be a free download wherever you get your podcast. But right now, you can be watching us live on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook Live, or on our homepage, autism hyphen live.com. We recently had some problems with our website, but they are, um, I think mostly repaired. And, uh, if you ever see something on our website, if you click on something and it doesn't work, please, we're, we're trying to monitor it a little bit more closely, but please, I love it when viewers tell us, look, you know, this link isn't working. We have so many videos on there. There's over 5,000 videos on our website. And so it is impossible for us to click on them on a daily basis. So let us know if you see something that isn't working. Also, um, want to let you know that we are so grateful that right now we are considered the number one podcast having to do with autism worldwide. That is just because of you guys, my friends, because you have liked, you have shared, you have subscribed, you've followed all the, you've reviewed all the different things. We want to key you into um, something that's always been available to you, um, but we're going to beef it up a little bit, that when you go to our website, autism-live.com, within about seven seconds, a little pop-up will pop up and say, hey, would you like to be added to our mailing list? And we've got some really good content that we want to get to you guys aside from the show, Um, some articles and things of that nature. So we won't spam you. We don't uh, we don't do advertising. The only time we will 
um, give you something that's third party is if they've given you a discount, like a substantial discount, and we think that it's something that you might like. So if you uh, would like to go to our website, autism-live.com, and when the pop-up comes up, all you need to do is give us your name and your email, and you will get notification about, like, for instance, when we have Temple Grandin on and we're taking questions for her, um, but also some really targeted content that we think you might like. Uh, so there you go. Yes, Parker, you you emailed uh, us about an issue and, and I deeply, deeply appreciated it. So, because uh, we would not have found that error. There was a place in the middle of one of our videos where the sound dropped and we would not have known that had Parker not alluded, uh, alerted us to that. So please check us out. Please continue to like and share. We really appreciate it. Right, Nancy? Right. We do so much. Appreciate all of our viewers. Okay. Should we launch into the news? Yeah, let's go into the news. Talking about sound sensitivity, the first story is on that topic. Lots of critters in our first story. Uh, uh, is it cicadas? Is that how you say yes, it? Yes, I think, I think that's the right pronunciation of it. I always wonder how to pronounce it, but apparently there's going to be a cicada invasion this summer. Have you heard that? Yeah, I mean, I'd seen it on the news, but like a lot of things, it kind of was like, mm, I don't know if this has to do with us. And every then, so of course... Years. Yeah, Traven is telling us every so many years we have a cicada invasion, and I'm not sure what uh, areas of the country that they're more common, but for some of our kids on the spectrum, it can be a big problem, right, Shannon? Well, anytime there's something that's loud, um, there's there's the potential for it to be annoying, and this is loud and insects, and if you've ever been someplace where they do have cicadas, it, it's that wah, wah, wah noise, but when you right. put thousands of them together, it literally can be at a decibel that's harmful right. to, to, to the naked ear. So I hadn't really thought about this overly much, although I just in the background had heard these different stories about, oh, the cicadas, it's going to be bad this year. It's going to be bad. But I love that one um, news channel said, we need to like acknowledge the fact that this is going to be hard for kids on the autism spectrum. We're shouting out to local 12 and I don't know which city that's in, but uh, they put together an article about how to support kids on the autism spectrum. What an amazing thing. Yeah, I, um, I thought think that was amazing. And one of the things they said is uh, first of all, making sure that you're aware, you make your kid aware of it. And they talk about social stories. And I was cleaning Wyatt's room and I found a social story we did when he was five years old to keep him from eloping called Sammy Learns to Listen. And he illustrated I love that it. Social story. And it was a little monkey who was at the LA Zoo and was at the spider exhibit, got extremely scared and ran away and had to spend the night at the zoo. And all of these animals told him he'd better listen to his mom next time. And this was really effective with my son doing a social story. So you might want to consider if you're in an area where there are lots of cicadas, writing a social story about those critters. Yes. Uh, and I love Shauna says, I have three kids with autism. I make my own social stories. I absolutely love that. I think that's the best way to do social stories like you do and like Nancy did. 
Um, and it puts it in a context, uh, one of the reasons why we like social stories, and I know that a lot of ABA professionals completely lose their minds over this and say, you know, where's the science to show that it's effective? And I just wanna say, things don't have to necessarily show a skill improvement. Like sometimes they just help with giving context. Um, and I think that our kids need context. And, and one of the big things in this article is says, social stories and, it, and showing them a picture of what, what the bug is that makes the noise. If you have, some of our kids love bugs and they are not grossed out by bugs. Obviously, if you have a kiddo who is bug phobic, showing them a picture of what that noise is coming from, you know, you may want to use some discretion there. But I, I love that this article is filled with helpful tips like, you know, for some kids, it might mean a noise canceling headphone. Right. For other kids, it might mean staying indoors during the height of the, the cicada noise. There's one place in the article where it talks about the decibel level of this being higher, has the potential to be higher than a jet. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yes. So um, I, I, you know, I'm glad that we had an opportunity to share it because I think when we stick our heads in the sand and go, I'm sure it'll be okay. Sometimes that's, you know, not the most productive thing for our kids or for right. us. Have you ever seen though, there, there's something about cicadas that um, they, they travel in packs and um, there's one cicada that is sort of the orchestrator and that there are some people um, and there have been some people on the spectrum that are this way that they can hear it in a different way and they are able to find the one cicada that is orchestrating and when they pull it out of the, the group, they all get quiet. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And That's so amazing. part of me is like, I want to, I, I want to know uh, if anybody has experienced this or seen this, uh, because if you have somebody who's good at this, they're, they're going to be in high demand during this period of time this summer. Um, That's some great feedback for our audience. Um, we yeah. have Kirsten said that Quentin, her son, I guess, is a fly whisperer. And if caught, he eats one. Uh, Michael Caso yeah. said, wish my mom and I knew about social stories when I was a kid. I was in my 30s when I finally figured out my sensory issues. And uh, someone says, I hate these bugs. We got it bad in Kentucky my senior year of high school. I think that's Traven. I think that came oh, directly that from Traven. Oh, that Traven? You're right. And, and can I tell you that my husband, he was like, oh, if I find out that we're living someplace where cicadas are coming this summer, I'm moving. There are some people who just can't stand them. And then there are other people who actually love them and sort of love I that mean, sort of. Hum. I love the sound. It reminds me of summer. I like crickets and cicadas at night. Sometimes if I have problems sleeping, I turn on cricket sounds on my iPhone. There you go. It's everybody to each their own because it's a sensory thing and there's no one size fits all. I used to have a cicada, um, uh, a keychain, and you could click his little tuchus and it would make the cicada noise. So I wish I still had that because I would give it to you, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, Traven says they're blind and so they fly directly into you. But you know what, Trayvon, that brings up a really important point. One of the things that the article said is that it's important when you're talking about insects that, um, that you let them know that these are flying insects, right. but they cannot sting, they cannot bite. 
Um, and for me, that's an important distinction because if something's yeah. flying at me, I don't like it. But if, right. if it's flying at me and it can bite, I'm not hanging out. Thank God right? these, aren't, these aren't like bees or horse flies, right? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not about the wasps. I'm not about anything. And uh, we have a picture up on the screen. I don't, it's not, I don't know if you want to full screen it of what one particular, that, that's a particular ugly cicada. I've seen red cicadas eyes. that were- They have red eyes. It's gross. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we, people, is that you, Traven, who's saying the whole situation there? LOL. It can be the stuff that nightmares are made of. But look at Nancy. Nancy finds it comforting. Uh, so there you go. Cicada in invasion uh, 2021. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Definitely check it out. See what you need to do to help yourself. But I like the idea of this of the noise canceling headphones because I don't know about you, Nancy. Anytime I can get ahead of something and go, maybe we should have that. It will right. help with other things. Right. If your kids, um, I don't know, Michael. Michael says I'm glad I'm in Canada. I don't know that you're going to be excused from the cicada thing this summer. So I wouldn't get too cozy with that, Michael. Um, just saying. Uh, our next story, though, is a very interesting story that, um, very interesting to me, that there is a movement on Capitol Hill, a group of uh, legislators have gotten together, 90 or so of them, and who they're calling for the federal government to significantly ramp up its uh, investment in autism-related activities by spending an additional $150 million on the developmental disorder. It's a yeah, bipartisan... Effort, yeah, bipartisan, which, I, which yeah. I thought was very encouraging, right, Shannon? That it's both sides of the aisle um, yeah. are, are behind this. Well, you know, we we say all the time here that um, autism is not partisan. Like, you know, there are an equal number of people on both sides of the aisle who autism affects their their family or their friends and family. So I love that they're getting together on this. Um, and one of the things that they're doing is recommending that they bring up the funding to a level that was recommended, um, years ago, they started a commission that was, um, supposed to be looking at autism related things and reporting back to the government about things that should happen. And this entity, uh, recommended several years ago um, that the funding be upped. Um, and it's the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee, the IACC. Um, and, and they had recommended that that number be up. So they're asking for that number to be upped. I would say, Nancy, the only part of this that I'm not super thrilled about is that this goes to the money that they're asking for. Um, they're saying it goes directly to autism efforts at the National Institutes of Health. So that's going to go towards research, which that's not a bad thing. That right. it goes to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention because they want more to look at tracking, you know, who has autism and who doesn't. We're going to be talking a lot about that in the coming days because we're expecting new prevalence numbers to come out at any point. And they're kind of monkeying with the way that they're they're measuring it. So right. I don't have a problem with spending more money to track it, but um, 
you know, what I'm more interested in is that they're talking about giving some money to the Health Resources and Services Administration and the Administration for Community Living and Department of Labor. Definitely the Department of Labor, increasing hiring of those on the spectrum is a big push. And that's a big push of a lot of the autism agencies right now. I got an email from Autism Speaks uh, the other day touting a conference they're doing on employment. And I know that yeah, it's a big push across the board with a lot of autism organizations. Absolutely. And, I, and I, so I do like that about it. Um, but it seems that uh, most of the money for this is going to be centered on, on research about what do people need for transitioning instead of actually helping to transition. So that part, um, while I think it's necessary and important, I... Um, I'm concerned that we never really get to the part where we do anything with the research that that trickles down to the people that are affected by right. it. And I know I that's a sweeping generalization. What do you uh -huh. think, Nancy? Yeah, I share that concern with you. I mean, I think research is, is all very well and good, but there's been a lot of research in the past that we haven't fully, um, you know, done something about. Um, yeah. It's one in 45 now is the current estimate of autism. Is that correct, Shannon? I believe so, but we're about to get new numbers wow. any day now. Like wow. literally we're on prevalence watch. And then so we'll with see. one in 45, I think we better be putting, implementing some solid plans to help those that are on the spectrum um, with support. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never want to be in a place where I'm saying that research isn't important because I do think that research is important. But <clears throat> years ago, we were asking when they instituted the IACC, I think we were all thrilled and we were expecting something big to come out of that organization. I'm still waiting for something big to come out of that organization and have them move from let's sit around and talk about it to let's like do something about it. Uh, and if that feels harsh, I'm sorry, but I get impatient, you know, okay. um, and, and, I, and I really, you know, we were talking about it at a certain point that a, an autism czar should be appointed. Right. Somebody whose sole job it is at the government to be looking at the autism thing and implementing. Still want that, still want that. Absolutely. Um, and then of course we can argue endlessly about who the autism czar should be. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think yeah. everybody, the conversation stops there. I've got you some ideas. Any, you have any ideas, Shannon? Yeah. I mean, I have lots of ideas of people right. that I'd like to, to nominate for um, the autism. First of all, I think Dr. Grampiche would be a good person She'd to nominate great. for that. We, we had Lori Unum. What about, Unum Temple? What on about the show. Temple Grandin? What about Temple? You know, I don't know that Temple, that that <laughs> would be a thing that she would want to do. Um, but if she did, I think, she, <laughs> I think Stephen Shore, who we had on the show last right. week, I think he'd be a great autism czar. I think Lori Unum, who we had on Monday, I think they could go through the guests that we've had and come up with a, a list and, and be in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? So anyway, uh, we want to make sure that we have time for our guests. So moving on. Another, I thought that was a another critter story that you found, Shannon. Oh, uh, okay. I was going to go to the Dutch boy. Let's go to the critter story. <laughs> yes. Um, this this caught my attention, and this is the kind of study that, like, trips my mind out. Um, so 
we've we've all looked at the way babies cry and and in the time period that we've had children they do you remember when our kids were little nancy that they used to talk about how it wasn't just your baby crying that your baby had like four different types of crying mm -hmm. and that if you could kind of tune your ear to it that you could tell if they were crying because they were cold or they were crying because they were hungry or they were crying because they had gas and um I never quite could tune into it. Like I couldn't figure out what Jem's cries meant. And, and, and we were at the tail end of it. So um, it happened like right was as he was getting older. But did, were you into any of that research at all when Wyatt was little? Did you, you know, hear about that? I remember that? reading it, but I didn't differentiate the cries, for example, like when he was wet and needed to be changed or yeah. hungry. And I know they do say that there are, as you say, different cries for each of these things. Yeah. So, and, and we always see with autism that there is this, there are certain animals that they study because of their similarities um, to the way they react to certain things. Like we've talked before about tiger fish, that they will take tiger fish and they will experiment with tiger fish about something that they think might help with autism. And we're always seeing that mouse model that, uh -huh. that we'll hear about research and they'll say, well, we did this with mice um, and I'm always thinking like, why is that relevant? But um, this particular study is out of the University of Texas, San Antonio at, at their health science center. And um, it, it's looking at uh, mice and a particular type of mice and a particular gene variant. Right. It's on the, it's, it's a chromosome 16 uh -huh. and what they, what they know, and I'm sorry, my volume is so down that I can barely hear you. So that's why I'm just interrupting you constantly. I'm going to turn it yeah, up. Yeah, you're, you're doing fine. Um, so they're looking at this chromosome 16 in human children, and they're seeing that one fifth of the babies that have this in human babies have this gene um, issue on chromosome 16 that one fifth of those kids will end up being diagnosed with autism by the age of three. Okay, well, that's interesting to begin with. Right. Um, and, and a rationale for why we should be testing our children, um, getting a chromosomal uh, array to, to know this. Because if one fifth of those kids end up being diagnosed with autism, you would wanna be looking out for that. Uh, and they call the variant, you ready for this? Cause we're all gonna wanna crochet this onto a pillow. Why don't they come up with better names? It's the 16 P11.2 deletion. I'm sure we can all remember that. It rolls mm. trippingly off the tongue. So how does this get to mice? Well, they see that when mice have this gene deletion, that it leads to certain behaviors for the mice. And, and I love this. Doesn't it lead, Shannon, doesn't it lead to certain cries from the mice? Yes. Pups, they call the baby mice pups. Yes. So what they've, what they've noticed is that, that and the thing, the reason why they're doing it with mice is that mice come to like, uh, they, they go from being babies to being adults much quicker than children do. Right. So what they've noticed is if you have this deletion and you're a mouse, you're more likely to show autism like behaviors later on. So now what they went back and looked at is that what is distinct about the babies well before they demonstrate the autism like behaviors is that they cry differently. Because did you know this, Nancy, that mice, when they cry, have this, I guess it's ultrasonic sequence that they cry to their mother 
and the mother hears it and then responds. And there's a specific sequence that the babies cry in to notify the mom, I need milk or whatever, sort of like what we were being taught of when your baby cries like this, your baby needs okay. this. Well, it's already embedded in these mice. Very but, but the mice that have this deletion, their sequence of their cries is in a different order. And so they're asking for help, but their mouse mother isn't getting it. Hmm. So they're, but, but what they're interested in for this study is identifying that the, the kid, so they're looking who has the cry that isn't effective, that isn't in the right order, because those are the ones that we're going to see the autism-like behavior later on. I wonder how this is going to translate to humans, though. I wonder if the supposition is that human babies cry differently that have this deletion. Well, this is, this is now what they're going to look at next to see, because, you know, they've already shown that um, very small children um, have micro movements. Like there's a sequence of movements that babies make and that some kids don't do them in the same order that other kids do and that they're right. more likely to show signs of autism. So maybe this is all a part of it. Maybe they're going to discover that part of the social thing, because if you think about it, this is the mouse being social. I communicate to my parent in this way, in this sequence, it's like a key that goes to the mom, the key in the lock, right? And it has to be in this sequence in order to work. And that perhaps there is something about that that we can learn about the social skill that this is what leads to the deficit. Because if you, if you are asking for help and you don't get it, then you right. will stop communicating in that way. Huh. What if that's how our babies, if, right. they're, if they're crying and we're not getting it, it's a pretty interesting thing to geek out on. It is interesting. So and perhaps it could lead to earlier diagnosis, the cries. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And what if you could teach the mouse or teach the baby early on, this is the sequence that gets you the reinforcer, would they then still present with autism later or would that catch it in that moment and resequence it for them so that there was no disabling aspect of autism? I don't want to say no autism because, you know, there are some aspects of autism that are incredible, right? And it's a right. difference, not, you know, but, but there is a disabling aspect of some of these things. And if we could catch it before it's disabling and empower first the mouse, then the baby yeah. to be able to communicate what they needed, would it, would there be a disabling aspect? Right. Could be interesting. All interesting. We'll see what this study yields as the future. Yeah. Unfolds. We have yeah, one Shannon, we have one last story that we get can get to here that was really interesting. It was in Spectrum News and uh, in their viewpoint section. So I urge everybody to look it up. The title of it was The First Dutch Boy with Autism and the Nun Who Cared for Him. And it's a fascinating story that details the first young man in... in um, uh, the first Dutch 
young man that they have record of as being diagnosed with autism. Um, in the article, he simply called Siam. Siam? Siam? I'm not yes. sure how to pronounce that. Um, and the, the nun who was in charge in the Netherlands at the um, Pedological Institute, um, Nim Nimogen, I am botching these names, but- um, <laughs> Well, they're Dutch, so it's easy. <laughs> yeah, he, he appeared, the young man appeared at that institute and there was a remarkable woman, Ida Fry, or Sister Gaudia, as she was known, who took care of this young man and pointed out that the, he had gone in there originally because they thought he had an intellectual disability. And she was like, no, 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 this boy is smart. And she is the one that basically diagnosed him with autism. And stayed in his life for a period of eight years and, and helped him. And um, for me, it was particularly, I just think this is a really lovely article Mm -hmm. um, about a connection that can be forged and that a couple of times later on in life, um, she dropped back in on, on his life to see how he was doing and was thrilled to see that he was somebody who had been shy, but, um, you know, found his way in life, never married, yeah, um, but was very socially involved with his community yeah, um, a, had a great job as a bookkeeper um, and, you know, rode his bike to work every day and had a very happy, overall happy existence. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know, th there are times when I just, I really enjoy these sorts of stories of understanding that autism just didn't happen in 1982. Um, you know, there, there are these other stories and I, and I've always enjoyed hearing the stories of how people forge a life mm -hmm. because we're so focused when our kids are little on removing as many obstacles as we can. Like our kids just have more challenges than others. And so it's that thing. I always pictured Jem running on a track and that all the kids were running on the track, but some of them, their lane was filled with uh, the things that they have to jump over. And uh, what are they called? I can't even think. When hurdles. You, when you're, hurdles. Hurdles. Thank you. Thank you. Hurdles. And and I always pictured that his lane was all hurdles. And, and some of the kids running next to him had one hurdle or two hurdles. I think everybody's got some hurdles, but he had more than his fair share of hurdles. And I just love the idea of, you know, which hurdles can we take out so that he can run faster? I don't want to change who he is. I don't want to change how he thinks. I want to help him to be able to run as fast as he want in the, in the direction that he can have. And, you know, all of us have hurdles still in our lives, but I love hearing how people take their hurdle and it assimilates into their life and they become who they are. Like, I love looking at Wyatt and seeing, you know, Wyatt still has some hurdles and yet Wyatt is a painter that I will never be. Like he, and, and I can't wait to see Wyatt's story unfold to see where that takes him. You know that I have had this, you know, vision in my head forever that I see the two of you at a, a art opening in Paris. I believe it. I believe it. I think it's coming. 
And, and what a story that will be about how amazing and people will glory at Wyatt's paintings. And then when they hear the story of that, it's like, you know, Wyatt had all these other things and yet this thing arose from him. And, you know, for all of our kids to see, I love hearing from the adults about this is what I decided to do with this. Right. This it's is very, who I, yeah. It's very encouraging that a young man from this far long ago went on to have such a fulfilling life. Um, yeah. And probably a lot of it due to the, to the efforts of this wonderful nun, Ida Fry. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it just takes one champion sometimes to give a kid that extra push. Amen to that. And I think, you know, I mean, look at, we just, Elon Musk, we were talking about him last week. Look, you know, there are a lot of people who, who, find their way in a big way that we see in the news. But I, I, I think everybody has the story of how, how they find their way. And as a parent, I love that. I could, I could listen to those stories all day long. So this made me really happy. And I loved that there was somebody in his corner. Yes. Um, so, so you guys can check that story out. I, I just, we had a lot of people writing in. Um, okay, let's go back to, I, I wasn't following, sorry. Um, they, somebody said about time autism gets some more funding now if parliament would follow suit uh, somebody else said I'm really excited that they're doing research because I myself believe that since aut the autism complex disorders we really hope one day soon the scientists find a way um, and they're using the word cure I know that's yeah. really a word that is very um, but that's what the, the writer wrote in looking for a cure um, I want to say that here at Autism Live, that isn't a word that we use right. um, because we, we feel that autism is a difference. And again, we always want to talk about removing the obstacles, but having the person, you know, be who they are um, and not trying to change that. Uh, so just want to be clear about that. Uh, somebody else says, my son would get very overstimulated young and would cry as if he was being hit. They created a lot of issues in our shared household. Mm. I just recently shared a video with Dr. Grampichet, Nancy, of, uh -huh. of behavior of, that Jem had before he was diagnosed that she had never seen before. Okay. Um, and it's hard for me to watch, but he... He was, he was like two and he would do this thing where he would jump and he would go. Ah, 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 That's so ah. interesting. Wyatt did the same thing. He would, he would jump and go, ah, ah, yeah. ah like that. And it was just such un discomfort in the noise that he would mm -hmm. make. Like, like I honestly, there were times when I thought he was trying to fly. Like in his mind that he thought he could fly and the frustration of it, like it was, there was something that he wanted to achieve or do or fix. It was frustrated cry. And, um, and she had never seen this video that I, that I showed her. And she was like, he's really not happy. He's, he's feeling very not at ease is what she said. And I, and it was um, just like, it hurt my heart to watch it because it was, it was beyond frustration. It was all is not right with me. I'm, I can't do what I want to do really um, hard. And I, you know, I think for all the caregivers out there, it's devastating, right? Nancy, when Wyatt would do that, yeah. didn't you feel like he, he wanted to tear down a wall? He had a similar behavior. It wasn't the exact same thing. It wasn't jumping, but it was throwing himself. He would take cushions off of the couch and off of chairs, throw himself into them and emit this, ah, ah, yes. Ah. 
over yes. and over again, just throwing himself into the cushions. And it was extremely distressing. Yeah. And of course, you know, later on, I think we, we learned that some of that, some of it, not all of it, is that need for that sensory input because Jem did that too. Our house was always trashed with the cushions off the couch and, and he would crash into people too and crash into um, the, the sofa and the cushions and whatever. And sometimes he would crash into something thinking that it was soft enough and he'd hurt himself. So very distressing. Um, and we better get to our guest, Shannon. We're spending- Oh, yes. Yes, we yes, have yes, Leah yes. waiting in the wings, don't we? Yes, we absolutely do. And we have all, but we have all these comments. People are writing in about the cicadas. We'll try to visit that later. So I think that Leah is with us. Uh, let's bring, oh my gosh, it's way late. Let's bring Leah Hirschfeld in. Leah. We're, we're, talking, about, we're talking about too many things and not getting you in here. So tell them very Super quickly. So I'm good with it. <laughs> tell them very quickly what, uh, what your role is at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Absolutely. Um, so I'm Leah. I'm a research coordinator here at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, and I have the esteemed pleasure to get to come on the show twice a quarter. Um, sometimes Karen Nolte, who's our head of research, comes on. Um, and once a month, we get to come on and kind of explain some cool research. We take questions. So if you have any questions, throw them in the chat box. Um, makes my life easier. I don't have to try to figure out what you guys want to know. Um, so throw throw any questions on that you have, and, and then we come back on in a month and answer them or try our best to. Um, and here at, at CARD, um, this is only a small part of what I do. My other part of the day, I answer other people's questions, other clinicians, other therapists, other whatever, um, and sometimes parents as well. Um, and then I also, you know, we're also running studies and I, I analyze data and write up manuscripts um, and it's, it's a good life. It's not you're bad. <laughs> you're a very busy person, Leah. Very busy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting that we actually just got one of our um, manuscripts published, um, just accepted for publication about telehealth. So we're very excited. Our team is right. very proud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what have you got for us today, Leah? What are we going to be discussing? Um, so uh, kind of two things. So last month, I believe, when Karen Nolte, again, our head of research, um, oh, and I'll do a quick plug, parents, um, anyone watching, if you guys have any questions or want anything else answered, you can always email us at research at centerforautism.com. That's my plug. Um, so Karen, last month, I think someone asked her a question about vision therapy and kind of that intersection between auditory and vision and ASD. Um, so I'm going to quickly talk about vision therapy. And then I'm going to um, transition into synesthesia, which I hopefully am not going to butcher any time on the next 18 minutes of the show, um, <laughs> um, and transition into that. So um, very quickly, vision therapy, spoiler alert for everyone watching, I did not find a ton of information on it, to be honest. Um, and I'll quickly start with what vision therapy is. So according to the American Association for Pediatrics Optometry, which I hopefully don't have to say again, um, <laughs> vision therapy is a term used by optometrists. That's really just a, an umbrella term, and it means that they're just trying to improve a person's eyesight in a bunch of different ways. It can be to develop or improve visual skills and abilities, to improve visual comfort, change visual processing, um, change in interpretation of visual information. It can include training glasses, prisms, filters, patches, electronic targets, tons of things. Um, and the American Association for Pediatrics Optometry, hopefully that's really the last time I say it, um, had three types of vision therapy that they were writing about. Um, and one of them seems to be fairly, fairly well respected in the field, and two of them are not scientifically, um, there's no scientific research on them. So the first one that does seem to be 
um, does seem to be well established in the field. There's a whole subgroup of optometrists who work on this. It's called orthoptic vision therapy. And this is when they're trying to improve the ability of when you use both your eyes, I'm gonna look like a bug, both your eyes simultaneously so that you have a common single perception. So this is like, you know, you, you close one eye and one thing shifts a little and you close the other and one thing shifts a little differently, but when you have them both, it's right in the middle. That's that, right? Like making sure those eyes work together, again, the bug, um, making sure the eyes work together um, so that you don't see one like too far away, too close and whatever. That seems to be totally a valid, um, very well-respected area of, research, of, of optometry. The other two is behavioral perceptual vision therapy. And these are eye exercises to improve visual processing and visual perception. They might have special tinted filters or lenses. None of that's scientifically proven to my knowledge. Again, oh, I meant to say this in the beginning. Um, I am not an optometrist. I am not a vision specialist. It's not even necessarily the research that I focus on. So, you know, if anything comes up that anyone recommends, oh, uh, behavioral vision therapy will be great for your kid, go talk to an optometrist, specifically one who's worked with children, specifically one who's done some vision therapy, they can give you a better idea. Um, but the behavior perceptual vision therapy, I did not find anything saying that it was scientifically proven, and I found several sources saying that it was specifically not scientifically proven. Um, and then there was the last vision therapy was also therapy to prevent or correct nearsightedness, also not scientifically proven. I think you're just stuck with your glasses, um, which is kind of a bummer. Um, so those were those three types of vision therapy. Again, I didn't find a ton there. Um, and I'll touch base really quickly also, you know, when I was looking at the research on this, I didn't, I found a lot of information, I found, well, not a lot, but I found some research articles from the early to mid 2000s in maybe into the later 2000s, like 2007, 2009. Um, so there wasn't a lot of research articles and it's pretty old. It's over a decade old in that research. So this indicates a few things to me. When I see that, I get kind of a warning bell in my little research head. Um, and it shows to me that either folks are not necessarily interested in this research and if they're not interested and they started it and aren't interested there's probably a reason and then there's also something called a publication bias and this is really a bummer in the research field for all researchers and probably the public researchers have a really hard time publishing if we don't find any results so even though they might have been doing all this research and didn't find any results they can't really get it out there necessarily so when i see something that stops getting kind of traction after you know 15 years ago to me that shows me they probably tried they probably didn't find anything and they probably couldn't really tell the world that unfortunately this is just a guess i don't know for sure but that's kind of what goes on in my mind when i see something like that um so if your child is being recommended for vision therapy or anything like that definitely get a second opinion get a second opinion from an ophthalmologist who has experience in the care of children it's totally appropriate for your child to have a thorough eye exam to ensure there are no eye and vision disorders. There's certainly other disorders that are eye and vision related that you can work on. It just might not be necessarily a reading difficulty if your child's being recommended for that. Um, and I love this. I read this on a website. And I wish I could remember which one. I love this for every everything that you get recommended. I love this. Ask for the scientific evidence specifically related to that improvement. So you could, your teacher might say, your child's teacher might say, I think you know vision therapy might work. And you can say, thank you so much for that input. Do you have any scientific evidence that relates to that? They might say, no, I've only heard anecdotal. I heard this on a TV once, whatever. But they might also say, you know what? Yes, I did my master's in this and this is a pet project of mine and I love it, right? And to me, that's so great. And you can do that all anytime. Anytime anyone, you know, anyone asks or says or suggests anything, you say, thank you so much. What's your scientific evidence? And they might have something. They might surprise you. Um, 
And then one other really quick plug, because I think um, last month, I think there was maybe also some conversations with Karen about using colored tinted, um, mm -hmm. thank you, you guys are nodding your head, you know what I'm going for, yeah. tinted, tinted. Yeah, paint. colored tinted lenses. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I looked up some of that for the research there as well. And that's really mixed. Um, some some papers are saying so great, totally fantastic, saw great results. Other papers didn't find results or saw like a placebo effect. Um, and there's some conjecture around that. So, you know, with um, with why like if, if your child's being recommended for vision therapy because they're, you know, not reading as quickly as some of the other peers or not taking longer on written tests or something. It might not be necessarily a vision problem. They might be reading it, and I feel like you guys are, you guys are probably already know this. They might be reading it and and you know, losing losing track or you know forgetting the word or something like that. It might be more cognitive and not vision, which totally is also that makes sense, right? Like it's so hard to read, um, and the fact that we can do it at all is amazing. So so with those colored papers, what might actually be happening is that that those might be helping your child keep track of those words and those letters so that that's and that's great i mean that's a tool that works fantastic you should use it but that's where again that that you know research isn't 100 percent positive on if those really help because of a vision aspect or if those really help because they're just keeping track better who knows um but those are mixed results there um i mean i when i quickly looked on it i think you can get like a pack of 10 for like five bucks on amazon if you want to try it go for it i don't think it'll hurt your kid um but it's not necessarily uh, empirically sound um, on that one um, and then some other tools also you know if your child's having any kind of reading issues or anything like that you can ask for an oral test instead of written um, you can ask always for extra time on tests and assignments and there's a lot of really cool computer-aided reading software things like that um, so that's what I've got for the question about vision therapy and I'll launch into synesthesia but before I do I'll breathe and and ask if there's any questions or if you guys have anything uh, anything to touch base on um, Shannon, at what age did you have Jim tested for his eyesight? Because Jim wears glasses. Wyatt doesn't. I'm just yeah. curious. Jim was tested for his eyesight for glasses, like probably when he was in kindergarten. Uh huh. But but that was just going to a reg regular optometrist and getting fitted for glasses. And, and I didn't know how effective it was because he was still having issues like communicating what he could see and what he couldn't see. So that was always a little bit iffy for me. But the big thing for me was that at, when he was eight and, and had just finished with CARD, the recommendation was to take him to a developmental ophthalmologist and have him tested for that bug thing that, uh, <laughs> that uh, you were just talking about. And, um, and we found that he had a severe issue focusing his eyes, that his eye muscles would shake when he would try to focus on something in front. So he was looking at stuff like this because that's where his eye muscles were stronger, which makes reading really freaking difficult. So he was given a therapeutic, we could either come to the place to do it or what we did, because it was so far away, it was actually close to where you live, Nancy, and you know how far away we live from you. We bought a thing that was not a cheap thing. I want to say it was like $240. It was called an eye port and it looked like something out of a Star Wars movie and it had little lights that lit up and he would wear these glasses and have to look at the lights it was a game changer for us because then he was able to focus his eyes and then he was able to read. 
Um, so that's partly why I wanted this subject covered because like everybody always says, like, what is this? What? So I'm thrilled to know, um, you know, what you know now, uh, but I really want to hear about synesthesia. It's so cool. I was like, I, I was zooming through that because I know that was a question and then I got to this and it's, this is so, so cool. Um, so I'm going to try to zoom through this. So synesthesia um, is just a quick, you know, I, I think a lot of folks know this, but it's when you see one sense with another. So you see words as color or attached to color. You can hear the smells, things like that. Um, and so in the non-autistic community, in the general population, synesthesia is like four to 7%, not super common. Um, but synesthesia in the autistic community is actually fairly common. It's 15 to 20% um, reported. I mean, these are hard numbers to really come by, but that's like what people are thinking. So um, this is three, four, five times more common in the autistic community than in the non-autistic community. And as researchers, usually what we, you know, we're not as smart as our doctorates and things make us seem like we are. We're trying to just see what's what's different, right? And then we dig into that. So if there's something that's different, like the synesthesia, that's something folks are like, oh, I wonder what's going on there. Um, so this seems to be kind of a newer topic in the field. And I say that because generally if it's a new topic in the research field, what you'll see is papers published on one individual. Um, and these are called case studies, and generally it's a, it talks about like a, something you did with that one individual or that one individual's experience, and you're just kind of getting that ramped up to kind of make sure that like, hey, is everyone else seeing this? Okay, cool, cool. And then the, you go and do other things with larger with larger groups of people. So right now this research seems to be a lot about single individuals, which is great for the moment. Um, and so this real this is so cool, guys. I like I was like so excited. I sent it over to my husband. I thought it was so cool. So, um, so <laughs> Rydell and his and colleagues um, published a paper last year in 2020 on a German autistic man who they just call LP, um, who had synesthesia. Um, and so and they had this man had synesthesia more so than I think even would be typical. So they experienced visual sensations on basically every day to day input visual, smell, taste, emotions, new information he encountered. He had a new color, a different kind of color blend for all of it. Um, so for example, in the Cyrillic alphabet, H is pronounced like the German N, and LP saw it in like green. That's a mix of his white German H and the green German N. I mean, like wild, right? And there's like tons of the, I mean, just wild stuff. So um, LP could also learn languages incredibly quickly. This was nuts. So he learned to understand and speak Spanish in three days. At, wow. 16, at 16, he began learning Spanish. After three days, he could understand 90%, 95% of the words from newspaper articles and news and engaging conversations on several day-to-day -day topics. And then he continued to study Spanish just for six more months at a lower intensity. The researchers, without warning, gave him like a standardized Spanish test. He got the second highest score on the second highest like level, whatever. He didn't get the top one. He got the second highest level, um, which usually takes several years of intense training. Um, and he speaks German, Russian, English, Polish fluently, and then reports that he's also able to understand Latin, French, Dutch, Swedish, and Catalan at a basic level. Um, and this man sees different visual patterns for the same word, but pronounced differently. Um, so that might also help him, right? If you say... I don't know, I can't speak any languages very well, that's why I took sign language, but if you say one one word and then have an accent, he can see it slightly differently, which might help him with his memory and things like that. And 
easy to learn learn a list of numbers. He in one day he learned more than a hundred decimals of numbers of pi. Um, several years ago, and when the when the researchers asked him to recite it, he recited correctly up to the ninety seventh digit, which is wild. Um, so so cool. So I mean, like this is amazing. So this is way more prevalent in in the autistic community. And then again, they, these folks have like just incredible abilities. Um, and so that's all. That's just really exciting. I think that's just really important to highlight. Um, to I think Shannon, you know, when I was tuning in in the in the wings, um, you were talking about you know autism is not a necessarily a hindrance or something. We're trying to cure. It, it's beautiful. I mean, there's just so much here that's amazing. That's and we've, I've come on before and we've talked about um, artists and how potentially these amazing artists, I mean, Wyatt, everyone, there's just, you have to be able to see the world in a different way to, to hit those heights, right? Anyway, so the researchers are not done at that point, right? They tell us all about this really cool individual. Um, and then the researchers did brain imaging and EEG on 39 autistic patients and 37 non-autistic patients. And LP was in this mix. So the researchers looked at region connections to other regions of the brain. So how are these regions talking to each other, right? And to determine extreme connectivity, they looked at anything that was three standard deviations um, from the mean. So if it was like really far away from the connections. LP had 18 extreme connections, which was 78% of the ASD group and 89% of the non-autistic group. That was He had more of those connections. Um, so he's like, really connected in his head and I will say like he was only seven he had seven 18 he had more connections than 78 percent of the ASD group and 89 percent of the non-autistic group draw your own conclusions with those numbers necessarily um and then also some of those connections carried over so LP had 11 connections that were similarly found in the ASD group um and he had stronger connections than was found in the non-autistic community so it was super interesting. Um, you know, there's all these extreme connections going on. There seems to be some connections that are similar across the group. I will say some of the controls had even more extreme connections than LP. So who knows, right? Like this is all very infancy, but so interesting. And I think it's really important to bring up because you hear a lot about deficits and how to resolve deficits. And I think it's really lovely when we can come on and talk about the strengths that folks have. And again, you need to be different, right? Like you hear all these people who get to these heights, they just see the world in a different way. Um, and I think it's helpful as a, I mean, I'm again, I'm not a parent, but I think it's helpful as a human just to understand how different folks can see the world. Um, and that there's this connection potentially between prodigious talent we see in the autistic individuals and the synesthesia that connects with them and just, listen, just listen to these folks and, and try our best to put our, I mean, I can't even imagine seeing a color while I talk, but it's just so cool to kind of see that and hear that. And then to potentially, you know, get a better understanding of how those, uh, how those um, brain parts, brain regions connect. Okay. I did it. I have one minute. Okay. Whoa. Very good. Leah. You're amazing. And, and I just want to say, you know, so the word is synesthesia it, and a lot of times I just want to throw that out, this out there. A lot of you are watching and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But every time that I've heard about um, a person on the spectrum um, having synesthesia, their, care, their caregiver's parents didn't realize that they had it until they were old enough that something got said and there was a discrepancy. Great example in Christina Adams' book, A Real Boy. There is a section of the book where they're sitting at the dinner table 
and there's music playing in the background and there's a discussion about it. And, and the, her son says, well, I like this music because it's white. And yeah. my mom says, wait a second, what do you mean? Because mom understood exactly what he was talking about because she also has synesthesia, but she had never said it to anybody. That, um, and there are, there are autistic folks who will say to you, well, the number nine is green. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and unless you have a conversation with them where it pops up, sometimes it goes unnoticed. And so your child may have this and you may not even know. So I wonder, something to- Shannon, I wonder if Wyatt has it because I've asked him why he likes to splash the water out by the pool and look at the splashes. And he told me he sees colors in the water. Yes, yes. And, and I think it's entirely, and there are colors there. I mean, that's the truth. He sees the water like a painter. And mm-hmm. if a painter paints water, you and I see clear, but right. they see the rainbow. Right. And, and when you see a painting that's done of water, they, the palette is a rainbow. Right. So he's seeing it like it really is. But I also have thought before, it's possible that Wyatt sees a word as a color uh-huh. or as a pattern. Right. Well, because he's so in tune and the way he communicates is all about color. I have wondered that myself before. So something to look at. Absolutely. Uh, in any case, we're way out of time. Traven's going to get the hook. Uh, Leah, I'm so sorry we didn't leave you more time, but you did brilliantly with the time that you had. So appreciate it. People write in if there's something you want her to look up and research. Um, because sometimes it's really helpful to know what the research is. And sometimes there isn't as much, but that in and of itself is interesting as well. I, I want to wish everybody a happy three-day weekend here in the United States, because on, on Monday it is Memorial Day and we will not be here live, but we are starting tomorrow an Ask Dr. Doreen Marathon. So there will be shows that will be, um, that will be aired. Um, and you'll have the opportunity to see that. And we're back next week and we've got some amazing, amazing guests next week. We're going to be talking um, next week on our show. We have a wonderful guest, Mark Atelier. I'm sure I've said his name wrong, but uh, Nancy, you're going to enjoy him. I specifically put him on Friday because I knew you would enjoy the topic. On Thursday, we're talking about siblings. Um, so that's going to be wonderful. On Wednesday, we have Evelyn Kung with us for Ask Evelyn Kung. That's unfortunately all the time we have uh, right now, but I want to wish everybody a happy, safe weekend. Happy Memorial Day. Thank you all so much for having me. Happy Memorial Day. Bye-bye. And give your kiddos a hug from me. And yourselves a hug from me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye for now. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.